You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? This season of Profiles in Liberty has highlighted many incredible individuals who fulfilled the promise of 1776. Despite what we have often been led to believe today in schools and popular culture, the story of America has always been a big melting pot of individuals from a wide variety of backgrounds. America is not the story of a bunch of white men establishing freedom for themselves, but a mixture of different races, sexes, and cultures who didn't always agree or get along, but all contributed in some way to bring this nation forward, allowing it to live up to its own ideas. The fact that the story of these individuals are not spoken of as much is not a testament to our history, but one to our culture and education systems. Many of the stories of these figures fly counter to the narrative that the American heritage is nothing but a heritage of oppression. Certainly, instances of oppression are very much present throughout our history, but they were in spite of our founding ideals, not because of them. In our season two finale, we are going to cover the story of one of the most revolutionary women who ever lived. A story who defined what it meant to be an American well before many of the more popular founding fathers ever took the stage. And when many of those same individuals wavered on those ideals later on in their own lives, she stood firm, never faltering on the principle that liberty must take precedent, no matter the issue or the occasion. This is the story of the life 
of Mercy Otis Warren. Mercy Otis came into this world on September 14, 1728, in Barnstable, Massachusetts. Her parents, James and Mary Otis, were politically active members of Massachusetts society. Her father was an attorney and would soon become a member of the colonial legislature when Mercy was still very young. Given the circumstances of her parents and the revolutionary world she found herself in growing up, it isn't surprising that she took an interest in politics and history from an early age. Mercy, like many other girls at the time, received no formal education, but she absorbed much information by sitting and listening in on her brother's lessons. She was the third of 13 children total. In addition to this, she became very interested in reading, which she had plenty of opportunities to do with her uncle's extensive library. Educated at Yale University, her uncle, the Reverend Jonathan Russell, proved to be a valuable resource for the young Mercy. While her brothers got to go to Harvard, Mercy taught herself reading classical literature, historical books, and philosophical writings from the Enlightenment that Jonathan provided her. The written word captured her mind, and her imagination and passion flourished with every book that she read. She loved how a story can transport a reader to a different time, era, or reality. More importantly, she realized how effective a story can be when used to transmit a message or lesson. As she read stories throughout history, in her mind, it was an epic struggle of liberty versus tyranny. Here, she understood that as power expands in the hands of authority figures, liberty contracts. The Otis family was very vocally patriotic and supported revolutionary causes early on. As her father rose to prominence through the Massachusetts political structure, he became more of a friend to the Patriots protesting British rule. James's son, James Otis Jr., went on to have a very successful political career in his own right, the highlight of which had to be his historic court argument against writs of assistance, which went on to serve as a template for America's Fourth Amendment. Mercy Otis, however, was perhaps the most groundbreaking of all the Otis children. In a society where women were expected to tend to household duties and let the men handle the politics, Mercy broke all the rules. She was very vocal on issues that women didn't typically approach from an early age. She was intellectually curious and had an imagination that ran wild. She was incredibly well-read and could hold her own in a debate against any man that she came across. Mind you, this was in puritanical Massachusetts, less than 50 years after the infamous Salem Witch Trials. One of the very first governors of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, dealt with a case of a woman who had apparently gone mad a few years before her death. The theory that he had come up with for her behavior is that she was reading books and went crazy. Quote, if she had attended her household affairs, he proclaimed, and not gone out of her way in calling to meddle in such things as proper for men whose minds are stronger, she would have kept her wits. This happened almost 100 years before Mercy Otis Warren entered adulthood, but the sentiment was still very popular across colonial culture. When she was 26 years old, she married another popular patriot and member of colonial society, James Warren. The two would go on to lead a very happy and prosperous life in marriage, but this would also mark an event where her voices would be ensured to become more amplified than it already was. 
James Warren not only loved Mercy Otis Warren, but he supported her in her endeavors, not getting in the way of her personal voice. This made the Warrens a powerhouse across Massachusetts. Shortly after their marriage, on November 14, 1754, they moved to Plymouth, Massachusetts to build their lives together. This put them much closer to the political action in Boston, but still far enough away from the puritanical roots of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Over a hundred years earlier, there were two primary colonies that dominated the region, the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Plymouth Colony, led by Governor William Bradford, was settled by who we think of today as the Pilgrims. This group enjoyed many of the trademarks of what we think of today as liberal society, things like private property rights, democratic elections, free speech, etc. The Massachusetts Bay Colony, however, was settled by the Puritans a little over a decade later. This larger region of Massachusetts was dominated by superstitious religious fundamentalists, and it was their presence that led to the Salem Witch Trials. It is very likely that because Mercy grew up and established herself in the Plymouth region rather than the Massachusetts Bay region, that she became as bold and as outspoken as she was. Warren's family ties, both to her husband, James Warren, and her brother, James Otis Jr., led her to eventually run in the same circles as the ambitious and revolutionary Adamses. John Adams was present for her brother's landmark arguments in front of the colonial superior court against writs of assistance. He even once remarked that this case marked the moment the spark of the American Revolution was ignited. As James Warren became active in local and eventually colonial politics, the Warrens would host dinner parties, inviting many politically active friends over to their home. This included many of who would become the members of the Sons of Liberty. Her correspondence with John and Abigail, however, grew into a special friendship in particular. Mercy Otis Warren acted as a friend and a guide to the young and ambitious couple. For Abigail in particular, Mercy helped her find her own voice and sense of purpose, both in public and in private life. Sixteen years her elder, Mercy was a trusted friend and a steady guide to a young and influenceable Abigail Adams. As the events that led to the American Revolution started to intensify, Mercy wanted to become involved. Despite some wishing her to keep her head out of what was seen as male matters, she continually made her presence known, even if it was not wanted. She explained that, quote, as every domestic enjoyment depends on the decisions of the mighty contest, who can be an unconcerned silent spectator? In her mind, a woman's business was anything that affected her, and what more affects everyone as equally is British oppression. However, beyond this, this hit a roadblock. She wanted to do more to fight for her rights and the rights of her fellow countrymen. However, she was very limited in her options. She could not join the military to fight, nor could she serve in any political office. She couldn't even vote. So, she wondered, how could she possibly help liberate her countrymen with her hands tied like this? Her mind kept returning to her love of the written word. How consuming literature sparked her fever for the ideas of liberty. How the stories of history taught her the dangers of collected power and the fragility of freedom. If she picked up her pen and wrote stories about freedom, she might just be able to spark the same spirit of revolution that ignited her spirit years before and thousands more. As it turned out, she would take a note from Benjamin Franklin's playbook. 
As she wrote, she wrote anonymously. While her name specifically wasn't being pushed forward, this likely made her writing that much more popular. She first picked up her pen writing plays and satires. This proved to be incredibly effective. While articles and pamphlets worked often to popularize an ideology first and foremost, plays and satires were meant to entertain. With this approach, it was easier to persuade audiences. We can still see this being the case today, with movies, TV shows, and music often influencing culture far more effectively than political writing. Some of Warren's most influential plays included the 1772 script The Adulterer, which became a smash hit. It portrayed British rule as corrupt and satirized Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson with a character named Rapatio. This was a royal official who was malicious, arrogant, corrupt, and traded the liberties of his countrymen for his own personal gains. One line of dialogue in particular for the villainous Rapatio reads, quote, I'll make the scoundrels know who sways the scepter. Before I suffer this, I'll throw the state in dire confusion. Nay, I'll hurl it down and bury all things in one common ruin. Over fields of death, with hastening steps, I'll speed and smile at length to see my country bleed. The people loved it and the play greatly affected public perception of the governor, a full year before the Boston Tea Party. In the remaining years leading up to the revolution, she published two additional plays that satirized and criticized royal officials in Massachusetts and even the king himself. In The Defeat, published in 1773, the Hutchinson-inspired Rapatio is again featured and scoured in the play. In the 1775 play, the group, Mercy depicted the king annulling the Massachusetts Charter of Rights and what would happen under such conditions. All of her plays were massively successful and played a key role in inspiring a spirit of rebellion in Massachusetts specifically. While Sam Adams and Paul Revere published patriot propaganda that inspired fear and anger toward the crown, Mercy took the entertainment angle and this proved to be just as vital. Outside of her influence as a playwright, she also played a vital role in creating the organizational framework that led directly to the outbreak of the American Revolution. At the time, many extra-legal meetings, organizations, and committees were formed to tiptoe around the British government authority and surveillance. These groups had no official legal authority, but their presence was known, understood, and respected by patriots in the colonies. The Continental Congress was perhaps the largest and most extreme instance of these organizations, but many smaller independent groups sprung up in several communities. In Massachusetts in the early 1770s, many of the meetings and gatherings occurred in the Warren House, where patriots could meet and speak freely without fear of arrest, surveillance, or censorship. During these meetings, Mercy was very outspoken and involved in the planning and organizing of many next steps taken. These organizations, which effectively served as shadow governments, were disorganized in the early 1770s. So in November 1772, at the Warren House during one of these meetings, Samuel Adams and Joseph Warren formed the Committee of Correspondence. Apparently, this was at the suggestion of Mercy Otis Warren herself. 
As opposed to their local counterparts, the Committee of Correspondence served as a larger network of committees, connecting Patriot leaders from towns and communities across Massachusetts. The Committee of Correspondence allowed Patriots to maintain an active level of communication, leading up to the very night before the American Revolution kicked off. Mercy wrote later that, quote, no single step contributed so much to cement the union of these colonies. After the revolution began, Warren continued writing. It's strongly believed that she is the author of the play The Blockheads, 1776, and The Motley Assembly, 1779. They both played key roles in maintaining support for the revolution in some dark days of the war. She also maintained correspondence with many of the most influential figures in the American Revolution, including George Washington, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, and of course, John and Abigail Adams. To Abigail, she spoke of a woman's role in the new American Republic should they pull off the impossible. She maintained that women taxpayers should be included in representation just as any man is. Yet, other than a few letters and perhaps some private conversations, she did not view her role as one to directly cultivate a more equal social structure between men and women. This may be surprising to some listeners, considering how fearless and bold she was to break conventional norms and social stereotypes about women. Warren, however, understood that this may be biting off a bit more than she could chew in her day and age. She once wrote in a letter that, quote, "...whatever delight we may have in the use of the pen, or however eager we may be in the pursuit of knowledge, yet heaven has so ordained the lot of female life that every literary attention must give place to family avocations." As much as she may not have liked it, she seemed to understand that, at least at that time, society was not ready for total equality of the sexes. This was a similar position many founders found themselves in over the issue of slavery. To her, her talents were best used to advance the patriot cause. Only in a free country could anyone hope to address these issues appropriately. Mercy Otis Warren's contributions to the Patriot cause during the American Revolution were unparalleled in her day by anyone. Other than Samuel Adams and perhaps Thomas Paine later on, nobody did as much to cultivate the spirit of revolution in the colonists, especially in Massachusetts, as much as Mercy did. She was, by every definition, the heart and soul of the American Revolution and many people influenced by her at the time did not even realize it. However, it wasn't until after the American Revolution, when the Republic was forming into a real nation, that Warren put her name and friendships on the line in favor of preserving freedom.
After the revolution, Mercy continued her inflammatory writing, but she increasingly dabbled into more non-fiction and political writing, this time attaching her real name to the pamphlets. If writing political plays defined her throughout the revolution, these sometimes controversial publications would define her life in the early republic. At first, her writings were incredibly popular. However, it wouldn't take long before she started to step on some toes, including those of some of her closest friends. The first move that the Warrens made, however, was not to burn any bridges or to stir controversy after the revolution. Rather, they decided to move, perhaps to the most satisfying of locations. After the war, they purchased a new home in Milton, Massachusetts. It just so happened that this was originally the home of Mercy Otis Warren's original political target, Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson. They remained in this home for the next 10 years, where she would establish the next phase of her legacy. As brave as she was for taking on Hutchinson during the revolution by means of her plays, she had the people of Massachusetts on her side. That would prove to be much easier than her next political battle. She soon became greatly concerned that the Republican values that so many fought and died for were being abandoned by the very people that helped ignite the revolution in the first place. Throughout New England, and in Massachusetts in particular, the public began to favor a stronger central government as opposed to the less powerful Articles of Confederation that were implemented at the time. Many of those who were powerful voices for liberty in 1776 became advocates for centralization going into the 1780s and 90s. This development greatly troubled Mercy and provoked her to take some rather controversial stances. As the 1780s culminated in the great debate over the U.S. Constitution, Mercy Otis Warren became isolated. Whereas she once commanded the attention of her fellow New Englanders to stir up support for the revolution, now, she was a lonely voice, one of the few who spoke out against the dangers of centralization. In 1788, she published a new pamphlet entitled Observations on the New Constitution. Originally, it was believed to be written by Elbridge Gerry, a son of Liberty from Massachusetts and one of the few others who initially opposed the Constitution as it was written in 1787 and 1788. In it, Mercy didn't hold back on her strong anti-federalist views. She believed that the new constitution would promote aristocracy rather than democratic republicanism. She scorned the new document for centralizing many of the powers that would otherwise belong to the states. She also saw the lack of inclusion of a Bill of Rights as especially troubling. The last point was perhaps the greatest roadblock the Constitutional Convention faced in its adoption. While Federalists assured critics that the new federal government would have no such power to violate the liberties of the people, anti-Federalists, like Mercy, knew better. Essentially, the Federalists were asking the people to trust that the government would only operate within its limitations and that it would never try to expand those limits or test the waters of what it can get away with. Or, to put it more simply, the Federalists' vision of the new Constitution hinged on the promise that government officials would only operate under good faith. Mercy Otis Warren and the other anti-Federalists laughed at this absurd notion and wasted no time calling it out. While the new Constitution was ratified by the states in 1788, 
Mercy's observations on the new constitution help lay the groundwork for popular opinion to support and to push for the inclusion of a Bill of Rights. In fact, without the political compromises of James Madison pledging to support the inclusion of a Bill of Rights after the passage of the Constitution as is, it's unlikely that Virginia itself would have ratified it. Still, Mercy never softened her personal views, even with the inclusion of the Bill of Rights in 1791. She remained a fierce anti-federalist and Republican throughout her life. Just because they managed to succeed in including a Bill of Rights did not mean that the Constitution was not riddled with flaws. More concerning to her, however, is that she viewed many of her closest friends and revolutionary colleagues as selling out their principles in favor of more centralized authority. In 1790, Mercy published a collection of her writings, entitled Poems, Dramatic, and Miscellaneous. She used this as an opportunity to get back at her literary roots and publish a few more plays. Now, however, instead of making a mockery of the corrupt and bad-faith government officials of the British government, like Thomas Hutchinson, her sites targeted American government officials. In The Sack of Rome and The Ladies of Castle, she used her skill as a playwright to target America's growing tendencies toward aristocracy and monarchy. She even sent a copy of the collection to President Washington. It is likely that she kept the president in mind with some of her criticisms. While Washington himself never ascended to the role of an American monarch, his friend and colleague, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, persuaded him to take actions that weren't always in line with the new constitution. Still, Washington harbored a great amount of respect for Mercy Otis Warren and carved out some time of his busy schedule to read portions of her play. He wrote back that, quote, from the reputation of its author, from the parts that I have read, and from a general idea of the pieces, I am persuaded of its gracious and distinguished reception by the friends of virtue and science. Despite their friendship and mutual respect, Warren was not afraid to hold those in authority accountable, even the likes of George Washington. Yet, it was the position that she took against Washington's successor that caused the most strain in her personal life. John and Abigail Adams had become lifelong friends to James and Mercy Warren. They were there in the earliest days of the Revolution, and Mercy was something of a mentor to a young and influenceable Abigail. However, when John ascended to political notoriety, a rift in their friendship began to form. It started to form during the early 1780s when John supported the Constitution and Mercy was notably against it. However, it came to a peak during the Adams administration. Warren, who was a fierce supporter of Thomas Jefferson, abhorred the blatant disregard for individual liberties demonstrated by the president. In 1798, John Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which, among other things, criminalized free speech and free press. Criticisms against the president, Congress, or basically any federal official other than the vice president, who just so happened to be Thomas Jefferson, were all but censored outright. It was made illegal to spread false information and lies against the president, but the threshold of that definition was obviously up to interpretation. This led to many of those simply exercising their free speech becoming imprisoned. To some degree, Mercy must have felt somewhat vindicated. 
She had warned just a few years earlier that a constitution without the protection of liberties would lead to a runaway tyranny. The Federalists assured that this would not happen because the Constitution gave no such authority to the federal government. Now, however, it was violating civil liberties despite the protection of the Bill of Rights. The election of 1800 came and went, and Thomas Jefferson emerged victoriously. He pardoned those convicted under the Sedition Act, and a new era of American prosperity began. During this time, Mercy picked up her pen and wrote about what drew her to the ideas of liberty in the first place. History. She wanted the United States to have a proper understanding of how their nation came to be and the values that guided it. So, she began to write a three-volume narrative entitled History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution. In it, she told the story of the American Revolution and the aftermath from her perspective. It was a remarkable accomplishment in many ways. Her history was one of the first thorough recounts of this time period by anyone, let alone by a woman. It was as authoritative as all of her other writings and promoted revolution and decentralization. President Jefferson was so enamored by it that he ordered copies of it for himself in the White House and for all of his cabinet. However, like her other works, it was far from removed from controversy. She opened the history with an assessment of her personal political philosophy. Quote, Every domestic enjoyment depends on the unimpaired possession of civil and religious liberty. She recollected anecdotal accounts of many of the titans of the revolution, such as Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams, and Patrick Henry. However, she was not so kind to all the participants of the revolution. With President Washington, for instance, who had just died only a few years prior, she offered her objective perspective, which was that the president was indeed a man of immeasurable virtue and character, but became too comfortable with calls for centralization. She, however, left the final verdict on the Washington administration up to posterity. Quote, the operations and the consequences of the civil administration of the first president of the United States, notwithstanding the many excellent qualities of his heart and the virtues which adored his life, have since been viewed at such opposite points that further structures on his character and conduct shall be left to future historians. This was about the most that she restrained herself in criticism of anyone who was connected to the Federalists. Alexander Hamilton, for instance, was condemned by her for establishing a national debt, which, quote, was probably never intended to be paid. Additionally, she offered severe criticisms for influencing President Washington to carry out acts antithetical to the ideas of liberty. This primarily included condemning Hamilton as the, quote, prime mover and conductor of the extraordinary business of using the military to violate state sovereignty in order to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. Yet, the census position that she took was against her old friend, John Adams. In her recounts of the Revolution and Early Republic, Mercy saved her sharp and unfiltered criticisms of Adams for last. Washington and Hamilton were both dead by the time that her work was published, and thus could not defend themselves from criticism. Adams, however, was very much alive and fresh in the minds of the public. 
She did admit that, quote, the heart of the analyst may sometimes be hurt by political deviations, which the pen of the historian is obliged to record. Yet from there, she did not hold back. She made the case that the deviations made by Adams during his presidency included, quote, the prejudices and passions, sometimes too strong for his judgment. She claimed that he was too partial for monarchy and had, quote, relinquished the Republican system and forgotten the principles of the American Revolution, which he advocated for nearly 20 years. It was not long before John Adams had received a copy of Mercy Otis Warren's history. As he read over her assessment of him, he was filled with both anger and sorrow. He was upset that Mercy had contributed to doing such damage to his reputation, which was already severely hurt after the election. He was also hurt by the fact that someone who was such a close friend to both he and his wife would write such things. This was a point in Adam's life where he had lost most of his friends from the revolution due to death or political rivalry. His closest friend, Thomas Jefferson, was now his chief political enemy and their friendship would not recover for several years more. Mercy's harsh words made him feel further isolated from yet another formal friend. They began to write to one another after her work was published. Adams wanted answers for her harsh criticisms. Mercy was not going to back down, even at the expense of her personal relationships. After receiving a strongly worded letter from the Adams, Mercy shot back, saying, quote, The lines with which you concluded your last correspondence capped the climax of rancor, indecency, and vulgarism. Yet, as a friend, I pity you. As a Christian, I forgive you. But there must be some acknowledgement of your injurious treatment, or some advances to consolation, to which my mind is ever open. Before I can feel that respect and affection toward Mr. Adams, which once existed, in the bosom of Mercy Warren. The two continued to write back and forth until Mercy finally had enough, and concluded that John's protesting letters were, quote, more like the ravings of a maniac than a cool critique of genius and science. Eventually, however, they were getting too old to keep up the feud, and too many of their counterparts from the revolution were dying. Abigail managed to make peace with her old mentor in 1811, yet John remained at an arm's length away. The following year, their mutual friend, Elbridge Jerry, managed to convince John to put this petty squabble to rest. He and Mercy ended their back-and-forth arguments, but John was still hurt by the offense and never fully managed to make up with her. Mercy Otis Warren and the Adams called a truce to their feud just in time. Only two years after they ended their fighting, Mercy Otis Warren passed away at the age of 86. By this point, she had returned to Plymouth from her and James's decade-long tenure in Milton. Her life and legacy are one that should never be understated, but is too often forgotten. Mercy was a staple in the American Revolution, stirring the hearts and minds of countless colonists, shifting attitudes in favor of rebellion. After the revolution, she continued to make an impact and push boundaries for what was expected from women at the time. She was fearless in her condemnation of the new constitution and reminded Americans, then and now, to always keep in mind why we fought a revolution in the first place. She became the first female to write a detailed history of the American Revolution and early republic, and one of the first people to do so, period.
Then, finally, she demonstrated how liberty is a concept that must be guarded with our lives, fortunes, sacred honor, and at times at the expense of our personal relationships. Despite coming at the expense of her relationship with the Adams, Mercy Otis Warren never faltered in her defense of liberty, and that is something that can be a standard for all of us to live up to. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this season finale of Profiles in Liberty. I hope that you enjoyed season two of The Equalizers. This has been such a pleasure to be able to make and to be able to bring to you these stories. Uh, I certainly got a lot out of them, and I hope that you did too. Please continue to keep sharing uh, these episodes uh, as much as you can. It really helps with the show and the programming, and it really helps spread the message and the stories of liberty. With that being said, I know that you all are probably all very eager to hear about what the next steps are and when the show is going to be returning, with this being our season finale. And I am very excited to announce that on August 4th, season 3 will be rolling out. Please stay tuned for more information. I will be providing that as much as I can uh, in the weeks and months leading up to that. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can follow We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Again, thank you so much for tuning in to this season. Uh, it has been a lot of fun, and I hope that you have enjoyed it. Please let me know how much you loved it. Until next time, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.